This is Conversations from the Center. I'm Dalida Maria Benfield, the Research and Program Director of the Center for Arts, Design, and Social Research. I'm Chris Bratton, the Executive Director of the Center, and today's conversation is called Resistance, a dialectic of movements, struggles, and social justice. We open this session with the case study. It's a conversation with the field recording show, Kate Carr and Luca Nashuti, who talk about genesis, mechanism, and meta-elements. This will be followed by an audio performance piece by Intan Rafisa. It's called Root Become Ritual. The idea is to bring ourselves as a collective offering in exploring self-expression, to experience togetherness and differences, inspired through healing methods in women's empowerment and self-care, that believes the power of healing through rooting back to nature connects to our local ancestors' wisdom and collective energy. We then go to a conversation with Lisa Brock and Otis Cunningham. Lisa Brock and Otis Cunningham are longtime activists and, and scholars, historians, in fact, whose focus has been on Black resistance, particularly in the Americas, but also more generally in the world. Lisa is a founding board member of the Center for Arts, Design, and Social Research, and also a faculty fellow. Otis is a faculty fellow of the Center, too. And the episode closes with uh, sound artwork by Oniki. Oniki focuses on the catharsis element of club culture, leading listeners in a purge of emotions. Their aim is to bring a feeling of ancestral spells and, and an atmosphere of rituals, drawing upon purifying power of wildness. My name is Sylvain Souclay. And this month, during the case study, I will have the pleasure to talk with Kate Kerr and Luca Nasquidi from the Field Recording Show. The Field Recording Show is a unique, sonic experience. Kate and Luca are based in London, and we will take a few minutes to talk about the process, the ideas, and the behind the scene of the Field Recording Show. The, so the Field Recording Show was, it was initially... Um, an idea that I had um, mainly because I think we've seen over the last couple of years just a growing interest in sound and I myself am a, a, am a sound artist who uses field recordings and I was keen I suppose to see if there was that broader interest out there, if there were people who were interested in discussions, theoretical or artistic discussions, kind of centred on, on the idea of field recording. Um, so I kind of came up with a, a fairly loose structure of possible themes, um, but I didn't want to do it by myself uh, as well. I sort of felt like it would be much better as a, as a collaborative exercise. And could you tell me a little bit more how you, you structure the show now? Because we talk about the beginning, but now it's something that has a definitive, not definitive, but a specific form. Um, do you see or listen or hear the music, the sound as another layer in the conversation? Do you make a difference between the voices and the sonic? It's definitely been something we have 
struggled with a little bit, especially at the beginning, and Luca can speak about this as well, because I think Luca was very conscious of, we were trying to include more of the sound as an art practice um, than seemed to really be that possible, given we were trying to discuss sort of fairly in depth with either theorists or artists about how they thought about their practice, um, or how they thought about their sort of conceptual frameworks if they were coming more from sound studies or other areas of the academy. But we did, I think, I, I don't know what you think, Luca, but at least for myself, like we considered that it would, would contain a lot more experimental audio practice than it has ended up being able to, and even potentially contain a lot more interviews um, rather than just the two that we that we've had from the beginning. Yeah. So it was kind of an, I feel like it was kind of a happy accident. That, I mean, I suppose having said, said that, I, I guess, I think we would be careful to note that, you know, we, our show does have a geographical bias. Like we, we certainly unfortunately haven't been able to represent, or we don't have context with artists from, you know, so many parts of the world. So I, I guess in that sense, I wouldn't call it sort of some kind of comprehensive sonic mapping but it's we certainly do try and be conscious of the fact that we are based in europe and there are people based you know in many other other countries and and to try and reach out and include a diverse range of participants and interviewees is is really important and a priority for us i mean whether we've been completely successful in doing that i think is is, is another question but it, it's certainly an aim yeah Going back to the practice aspect, you you, you are really giving space and time to uh, to the artists, but to their sound piece as well. Um, I would like to know if it's a, a conscious choice at the beginning to not focus on the gears, on the recorder, on the microphone. They are quite accessories in the process. Did you choose that? I feel I yeah. can't even remember whether we talked about it, but definitely yes, because it's not it's not something. I mean, it's not something that particularly find interesting, no, you know, the gear itself. Of course, there are some people that we interview that work with specific type of microphones or techniques. And, and, and so we kind of had um, maybe a more uh, technical driven conversation in that respect. But it kind of, it's always been, even when we talked about the tech, it's always been a very small part of it. And it's more to do with the approach to sound and listening and making and how we relate to it. And that's always been the, the main focus for it. I think because we, I mean, just speaking for myself anyway, I feel like there are already quite a lot of forums and that fall outside of a more creative practice in field recording, you know, for example, around sound engineering or location based sound recording, who actually technically know far, far more than me and, uh, and are more proficient in those ways. So, you know, I was never interested in, uh, in trying to, to have that sort of discussion, but much more, I think, what Luca and myself have been interested in is to have this space for uh, to really value the creative and the um, much more open aspects of field recording, but to place them in as well, which I think is another important thing, sort of a social and political context, you know, that it's not just something that's a value free act or, or a, 
an unauthored, unmediated act, which is to go and record. Um, so I think what what I hope we've been trying to do, or you know, been able to do, is really dig at, dig down into the sort of the, the politics, the artistic aspects, and the ethics of this practice of of field recording. You are both of you are practitioners, and you are in a specific position being able to uh, talk with people, be do the curation, have a conversation. Uh, did the show change your way to listen, to perceive Sonic and Sons? How, how that experience, that 18 month experience, modify or enhance uh, your practice? Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a good question. Do you have a good answer, Luca? I don't know if I have a good answer, but definitely having those conversations with people and then of course Kate and I have our own conversation after mm. after the interview or during the editing and, and, and all of that process and it definitely um, um, affects the way that I think and relate because of course, you know, there are I may question, you know, um, the way I listen sometimes or how people um, approach listening that might be different to my own way of listening. So be, being part of that conversation and sort of being open into um accessing experiences but also relate and reflect to other experiences definitely has an impact at least for me yeah i i i, I can't also point to something that i would be like oh this this aspect of my practice has changed um coming out of of this 18 month period but I suppose just in terms of how I feel about the sound community and and sort of ideas of, of connection or even inspiration. I mean, it, it's certainly added to my intellectual stimulation around ideas of sound. And, and you know, we we recently interviewed our most recent show was with George Revel, who's um, who's a geographer and we've had Benjamin Tosig as well, who's an anthropologist. So these are fields that I've never done any formal study in. Um, but to see the way that people like that, as well as of course, the, the practitioner side, which is something I'm more familiar with, but are using sound to enhance their own thinking within their discipline. And then, and the way that that is sort of cross fertilizing into sound studies itself but also creative practices that are being generated within that is um i find that really a brilliant thing and and it's something that i've been so happy to kind of learn and engage more with um as luca and i have, have done i've interviewed more people and, and done more episodes i mean luca has spoken about doing live um events this was obviously pre-coronavirus um yeah attached to the show and I think I, I think we've both been asked to speak on different occasions or uh, about the show uh, in a way that could be a bit more conversational I mean I like the idea of it um, but at, in this moment it's really something that's so far away from kind of yeah. the reality we'd started down the path of thinking 
could we do an event uh, or, or yeah Luca was the more the one who, who came up with the mm -hmm. idea but could could we do a sort of a concert that also combined this this kind of model of an in-depth discussion with one or two artists about their practice and I do think there is kind of a thirst for that it's something that would be different you know to the normal kind of concert format where it's just you know, I, I don't know, here in London, it's usually like two to three people in the experimental sound, two to three people performing like uh, 15 to, to 30 minutes each, but then it's usually just one after the other. There's not that much, there's not sort of, sometimes it's not even introduced. So there's not necessarily that much context for people who would be coming from outside of, 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 a, of a real familiarity with the experimental music scene. So I, I think in that sense, you know, there could be something really good about a very kind of conversational approach to concert going. Um, and I really like that, you know, in terms of bringing it into the room, you found that a good way of experiencing the show. I mean, Luca and I used to do it together in his bedroom, in his apartment, in uh, which is just around the corner from me. And, but now we have to do it separately on our uh, computers. But I think we've always tried to have it as very informal uh, in terms of the way we approach the questions, like we, we sometimes just come up with them on the fly and then we have to edit ourselves down because they can be a little bit too long. Um, mm. But, um, you know, we, we try to have it sort of as warm and as open as, um, as possible. You will be able to listen to every episode of the Field Recording Show on Resonance FM and also on Mixcloud. Now I have the pleasure to present a new audio performance, a piece by Intan Hafiza. I had the pleasure to see and experience Intan's work last year in Copenhagen. Her work is really subtle, but also in the space and blend with the audience. Intan created a piece for conversations from the center called Roots Became Ritual.
Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the Center. And this conversation is with Lisa Brock and Otis Cunningham. Lisa Brock is one of is a founding member of Center for Arts Design and Social Research and a board member, as well as a faculty fellow. Otis Cunningham also is a faculty fellow. It's really an honor to have you both here today. Uh, you both have such a distinguished history as both activists and scholars. And as Dalida said, today's conversation is about resistance. Um, my first, uh, maybe to start things off, I have a really general and quite a large question for you. And it's really, your work has, your work and your activism really has focused on uh, a kind of broad range of histories, but one of the threads has been the history of Black resistance. And um, if you could maybe talk talk to us a little bit about how you see the uh, the kind of unfolding of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular and the significance of the presence in light of your own experience and your own work. Hmm. That's a big question, Chris. I know it's a big question. We can break it down a little bit, and maybe, <laughs> maybe back into it with uh, 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 well, maybe maybe let me make it a little easier, okay? So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see your work as both scholars, particularly historians, and as activists. How those two things support each other and uh, kind of have shaped your lives. Does you want to start? You want me to start? He's pointing to me. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, and I, I appreciate your big question too, because I think that, um, and I'll try to fuse the bigger with the, with the, with the uh, smaller, is that um, I think people are meant to live in their full humanity. Um, they're meant to, to live with respect, to have, to be respected, um, and to be in a society where their intellect and their physical being is safe and, um, and they're able to take care of themselves and their family along with others within a collective. And I think when those things are not present, there will be resistance. Um, I don't care who you are, um, because it, if your humanity is being denied, then you're going to fight for that, for that humanity. So I think black resistance is rooted in that, in that uh, in this country, especially when you think about enslavement and captivity, all of that was oppressive. And so from the very moment of being captured, um, black folks were thinking about how to resist. And sometimes there are small pieces of resistance, uh, small aspects of resistance, like what Robin Kelly calls hidden transcripts, uh, where you figure out small things you can do every day. Um, to just maintain your humanity. And then there's moments when there is big resistance and big movements. Uh, and I think right now with Black Lives Matter, um, um, the movements over the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, from Occupy to uh, Black to the murder of Trayvon Martin and, and the beginning of Black Lives Matter, that those movements, <clears throat> those that consciousness has been rooted. And so when George Floyd happened, um, there was uh, what appeared to be, for some people, uh, a kind of, um, a lot of people were surprised with that. And I think for people who understand movement history, that it really didn't come as a surprise. When it comes is, is often surprising, but not that it comes. And so I think Black Lives Matter 
is the culmination of, of this period in history uh, and also the consciousness development around mass incarceration uh, and people fighting um, against the prison industrial complex, the 1%, and of course, police violence, which has been consistent since the first time that Africans were in this country. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's just continued until today. I don't know if you saw that there's a, a case from March in Rochester that just got publicity um, with the killing of Daniel Prude. And so right now, as we speak, there are thousands in the street in, in Rochester. And this is something that happened in March, but nobody knew about it. Um, and now they know about it. And so they're in the streets. Um, yeah, I would add that um, I just reread the other day an essay by James Baldwin uh, that he published in uh, The Nation in 1966. And in this essay, I think it's called Notes from an Occupied Zone. Territory. Territory. Mm -hmm. And he talks about um, um, police uh, violence um, and the material conditions of Black people in New York City. But when you read it, it's almost like you're reading about now, you know? Uh, so it resonates a lot. And I think that's part of the reason why you see, for example, a lot of postings on social media about Baldwin's works uh, because they are relevant for, they're relevant for the time. Um, but we're pretty excited about uh, uh, the movement for Black Lives because at least in my lifetime, this is the biggest social movement that I have seen. Uh, Next, what would be close to it would be like 1968, but this is still much bigger uh, than that. So we're very encouraged uh, by this. And then also, it suggests to us that uh, people have moved beyond just resisting uh, uh, the master narrative to actually proposing a new world. Uh, uh, when you say defund the police, they're talking about, well, what should be uh, public safety, not what we have now. So a lot of concrete proposals are coming forth, uh, uh, largely from young people about a new world, a new way of operating, doing things. Yeah. So thank you so much for those thoughts. Um, Lisa noticed, and obviously there's, there's so much that we want to talk about um, with you and want to continue working on with you. Um, and uh, one thing I've been thinking a lot about that I have been wanting to talk more with you about, and now's the time, um, is the question of coalition. And, um, or I, I think of it as coalitional politics um, uh, stemming really from uh, uh, writings by Bernice Johnson Regan and Maria Lugones. Um, you know, how is it that uh, women of color forged uh, um, bonds, uh, putting their uh, struggles um, uh, in conversation, in a comparative analysis, and then building action, action um, together? Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious about um, what lessons do you think need to be communicated to activists working now who are working across racialized differences? Um, what moments historically do you think we should be drawing upon 
um, for building those coalitions. Hmm. Well, clearly this movement around um, Black Lives Matter is a coalition. I mean, um, you know, you see all all types of people uh, involved in this. Um, and I think the, the organization, the rising majority um, is a contemporary uh, realization of that coalition uh, where various uh, folks of color and white folks are involved in, um, in, in thinking about what an American majority actually looks like uh, through uh, coalitional politics. I think one of the challenges um, is how we um, make sure that everybody is present and their voices are heard in a coalition. Um, and I, you know, I was just so struck. I don't know about you, you two, but I was so struck that uh, the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that the two brave heroes that were killed by that vigilante were white. They took him down and risk their lives and and we're not lifting them up and i think that we need to do that in order to build a new a new vision of coalitional politics um we need to think about the brave souls of all races who are out here fighting for the most marginalized and i the right is not going to do that because they don't want to call white people who support people of color heroes you know but we need to call them heroes and um i was just thinking about that and then thinking about issues in history, I think it's really important that we as progressives draw on um, the radical folks in our history that supported broad movements. And, you know, from the Civil War era, the radical Republicans, up until the communists of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and then, of course, in California and other places, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the coalitional politics of, of um of uh, Black, Latino, Asian uh, activists in the civil, and of course, um, uh, yeah, civil rights movement and the Young Lords and the Black Panthers. I mean, I think there are a lot of moments when um, when these uh, coalitions have happened, and I think they need to be talked about, read about, and, and positioned um, constantly in movements because uh, the right has a way of using our history to divide us. And, um, and there are push points that they can definitely use. Um, but I think you, you have your best possibilities when the movement is led by those who are the most marginalized. But I think those other uh, folks need to also be a part of defining and designing what that coalition looks like. Yeah, I would add that uh, one concern I do have uh, is that you do have some sectarian forces on the left in the United States who uh, are very narrow uh, and and generally they are older people on the left who don't see uh, the value and the importance of the movement for Black Lives because they're purists, you know, uh, and they're encouraging people not to participate the movement for Black Lives. They're encouraging people not to vote in November or to vote for uh, forces that cannot win. Uh, uh, but these are older people in general who have issues with uh, how 
the BLM is structured, the fact that it's largely led by pure queer uh, black women. Uh, and this is an ongoing sort of problem. You see it on social media uh, uh, quite a bit. And they spend most of their time not attacking the right or critiquing the right or exposing the right. They spend majority of their time attacking other uh, uh, black people who are in motion, uh, who are in the center or on the left, uh, uh, on these very purest grounds. And my view is that uh, I'm, I accept people where they are. Uh, we want everybody to do something. Everybody can, cannot do everything, but make a contribution. Uh, and, and, and I would look at probably the 30s and the 40s in terms of, in the United States, to look at the popular front. I mean, when you're dealing with fascism, how do you respond to that? You need a popular front. A popular front now is like an example BLM, uh, where you have an array of different forces, not all agreeing on everything, but they oppose fascism. And, you know, um, uh, Dalida, I'd like to also say I was thinking about this when I was, you know, this this notion of resist. And, you know, resist is really a dialectic of sorts in that, you know, it's a push and a pull. It's um, resisting, um, you know, uh, oppression uh, and fascism, but it's also creating new visions and new worlds, right? And I was thinking about this with Katasar, and I, I think uh, Katasar in its structure is involved in creating the new spaces, the new world, the new, the new coalitions, the new visions while this other resistance is happening. And I see that um, happening now more and more. I mean, it's always happened with utopian communities. And, um, you know, even in the U.S., you know, you had all of these histories of, of people creating small communities. But I think now um, it's not about pulling, um, you know, like withdrawing completely from society, but building uh, out. So starting with a, a vision of a new community like Katasar and that those boundaries continue to grow and grow and they bump up against the, the circle of resistance and, and, and like defunding the police is talking about taking something away from the old and recreating something new. Um, and I think those two things need to happen in connection with each other. And I think that they are happening in connection with each other. Um, and I, I think, you know, when we think about resistance, we have to always think about uh, not just what we oppose, but also what we want and try to build it, build it as we create opposition and resist um, uh, these, these forces, uh, which are increasingly fascistic, not just in this country, but of course in Northern Europe and in Africa and other places in the world, and of course, Latin America. Um, so, um, I just wanted to say that cause I thought about what Katasar is doing and, and, and think it's a beautiful model, um, of what can happen, um, when we create new communities. Thank you, Lisa. Um, uh, you know, uh, maybe this is, this is a question for both of you all and kind of, kind of provoked by what, what you just said, Lisa, and then Otis, what you just said, which is really, about the um, on the one hand building new forms of community and uh, and and I do think that that's partly what's at stake in 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 the, in what's happening uh, is is realizing imagining as you said earlier Otis but it, but also enacting new forms of community um, but one of the things that 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 I think has been 
troubling or, you know, has been um, really effective in terms of repressing new forms of community has been not just the most apparent forms of the police, which is bad enough, but, but there are also kind of other forms of policing that are occurring that are invisible on the surface. And, 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 and things that I, I mean are the kind of infiltration. I, I, I mean, I appreciate the, what you were saying about the, um, about uh, kind of old style leftism, which spends its time critiquing the movement, yet not kind of looking at the at the right. But on the other hand, there is also an effort to kind of, you know, a very concerted, always a concerted effort we know in this country to kind of undermine, to kind of pit activists against each other, to kind of isolate, to uh, smear people, and 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 surely that's going on too. Because it's always gone on, and it's always, and to some degree, it's been effective. And so, my question is really, how do we, how do we do the work of building new forms of community where these very, there are these very insidious forms of repression, and how do we protect those our work against that? Otis, you you always want me to go first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. I don't know, Chris. I mean, the only thing I think we can do is to be bigger than them um, and to be more honest and truthful than them. Um, it's very difficult, as we know, with COINTELPRO, the counterintelligency program um, during the 60s and 70s uh, with uh, a lot of progressive movements uh, at the time especially the Black Panthers and um, the American Indian Movement, especially that um, if you if you try to um, find out who's doing what all the time, you can end up kind of going into a rabbit hole. And it's you sometimes you may find what you're looking for. Sometimes you may find the wrong person. Sometimes, you know, you spend all your time on that and not building what you need to build. Although, of course, if you see somebody or you see folks who are doing that, I think they should be isolated, exposed. Um, but you just have to be careful because what can happen is that you can become a kind of mob against those forces. And when the forces are invisible and they're hard to, to grapple with. So I've always just believed that we continue to build. I don't know if you remember Chris and Dalila, but back in the 70s people would when they would open up an event they would say hello to everybody and we welcome the fbi in the room you know <laughs> so it's like <laughs> welcome to our event you know um because you just assume that they were there of course um, they were there and yeah. so i mean but of course it's more dangerous now because you have um you know all kinds of um you know infiltrators being the ones to lead the busting of the windows and then mm -hmm. You, the, the, the film is running when the when the other more marginalized people crawl through the window to get, you know, pampers or some things that they need and uh, or TV. They may need a TV. Um, and uh, of course, I question the whole notion of looting because, I mean, the real looters, we know who they are. Uh, and um, so, you know, I, so I, I guess I'm, I'm rambling because I'm not quite sure how we deal with that, Chris, except to continue to build the movement and continue to establish um, uh, protocols and uh, ways in which we work that are healthy and open and invite people in. And um, 
I think over time, if, if we create, like Otis said, a popular front, then it's hard for them to actually win. Um, but they're going to be there. Um, and it's hard for them to actually win if we continue to do our work. But I do think that um, in order to have a broad movement, we need to be very welcoming um, uh, and accept people where they are uh, and um, accept whatever contribution they are willing to make and are able to make. And I'm just caution a lot of young people I talk to that don't be concerned about these left sectarian forces that criticize you all the time because their base is quite small. Uh, and um, the way I argue against the sectarianism is I say, well, you know, objectively, these kinds of positions that they take, who does it help? Who's it, who's it, who, in whose interest is this happening? You know, because I've engaged some of these people on Facebook and it's like a waste of time. <laughs> it's just absolute waste of time. But sometimes I get mad and I engage them. But it's like a waste of time. So this is what Otis, you see he's he's stuck on this, <laughs> this left sectarian <laughs> because he's been engaging these folks uh like on, on Facebook and he gets very frustrated with them. And and like but but Chris, you're talking about actual police agents. And the question is, it's hard to know. You know, right, if they're it's yeah. hard to know. Are they actually working for the right? You know, because it looks like their goal is to reelect Trump. You know, and uh, I just um, and not understanding what time we're in in history, you know, um, you know, I think popular uprisings kind of speed up history. But then there's you know, we have to you know count our numbers, see, can we win? Where can we win? What's our strategy? What's our tactics? Um, how do we keep moving and growing if we are under fascism? Um, that limits what we can do. I mean, the secret police you know, up in Kenosha and in Portland and here in Chicago, you know, are picking up people, you know, just off the street. And we we have to stop those kinds of things if we can so that we can continue to fight for defunding the police and continue to fight for these things. As a, my friend Charlene Mitchell said, if we're all in jail or underground, it becomes very difficult uh, to, to struggle. Um, so... I think um, building on on that question of um, of building of building the struggle and building resistance, um, uh, and also the the work of the center as um, an international organization that's um, creating these spaces um, for conversations um, that are not happening elsewhere. Um, I wonder what both of you think um, in terms of. Uh, international uh, coalition um, and conscious, consciousness raising about the situation in the U.S. and more broadly, um, you know, about other situations of um, racist repression um, happening globally. Um, what kinds of what kinds of relationships do you think um, are really promising right now, and what kinds of relationships should be built? One movement we should look at in the Americas is this movement of uh, Afro-descendants that have chapters literally in every country uh, in Central America and uh, the Caribbean and uh, Latin America, um, because you obviously have a common history of uh, slavery 
and uh, racial capitalism. And black people throughout the Americas, uh, most of them are marginalized uh, in general. Um, because one Cuban told me who uh, works at Casa Las Americas, she said that she went to a, a, meeting, a meeting in Colombia and she went as a Afro-Cuban uh, and she came back from the meeting as an Afro-descendant. So I asked her, what do you mean by that? She was saying, well, um, the major narrative in Cuba is that, you know, we are exceptional. We're different than the rest of uh, uh, the Caribbean or Central America or South America. But she said once she went to this meeting uh, and she heard histories which were fairly common uh, and resonated with her in terms of Cuba um, and jokes and, and, um, and stereotypic depictions and racist depictions of black people throughout the Americas, it was clear to her that there was much in common and much work to do. Um, because he also said that um, with the coming of independence uh, uh, in Latin America from, you know, Portugal or Spain or France or Britain, uh, white people in the new dispensation uh, were white before, uh, during colonialism and slavery, they could be white in, in the new uh, independence. But black people in general and indigenous people in general in the Americas were supposed to give up their identity in order to be part of the new nation. And that's a common problem throughout the Americas. Uh, that. But also, when you think about it, it that applies to the Uni United States as well. So it's not just something in the Caribbean, South America, Latin America, but you think about our history in the United States, it's very similar. So indigenous people here are supposed to give up their identity, right? And assimilate. Black people are supposed to give up their identity. All, pe all, all people of color are required to give up their identities, you know, in order to be part of the nation. But then, but then, and so I think that's why the response when people say black or black lives matter, that there's a sort of a recoiling of some of the mainstream folks, because it's like, oh my God, they're actually claiming something. Um, and uh, the right wing does not like that. Um, yet sort of the normality of whiteness is with us every day. You don't even have to say it um, to have it be there. Um, but back to your question of, of internationalism, I think, you know, what's interesting, I think, about the question of coalitions and internationalism is that the um, all of our movements um, that have been black led historically have never been, except for a few minority movements within the black community, have never been narrow or exclusionary. They just happen to be black led. Um, um, and I think there's always been a connection historically, of course. I mean, this is what I write about uh, between Black movements here and other struggles, both in Africa and Middle East and, and, and Asia as well. Uh, and of course, I don't know why I keep saying, I just assume I'm th we know about Latin America. Um, 
But I think that sometimes the mainstream press wants to, or the mainstream media wants to present when you say Black, that Black people then are only talking about the Black struggle. And that's never really been the case. In fact, the movement for Black Lives has uh, visited Colombia, they visited Cuba, they worked with Palestinians. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada is very connected to indigenous movements there. And also indigenous Black Lives Matter movement here is connected to indigenous movements too. So I think the coalition is there. I don't know if you know, there's a new PBS uh, documentary called The First Rainbow Coalition. And it's about the Black Panther movement and their coalition with white working class people. Um, so I think that there's always been this, this internationalism it's just um, for black people have forefronted the black struggle here because, of course, it's the main lens with which they're fighting. But it's never been an isolationist or non-internationalist movement. Um, and I think that's important to understand. But I think it's in the interest of those in power to make it look like it's sectarian um, when it has never really been sectarian um, because they want to keep us all divided. And it's really interesting. I was I, I was on a, a webinar about a month ago uh, on the left, like what is the left today? And I got into kind of an argument <laughs> with an old leftist by the name of Carl Davidson, who is very easy to get into argument with. Um, and Carl basically was saying that, um, um, you know, he kept saying, if you talk about race, you're going to not going to unite people. And I kept saying, but if you, you're talking about your main goal is to talk to white people. See, that's what you need to say to talk about race to white people is where the problem is. But if you don't talk about race to people of color who are impacted by racism, then you're going to lose them on the left. So the issue is how do you create a coalition where people can hear the voices of those that are most marginalized and be okay with that? And I think this new movement today is there. When you see these multiracial folks out in the movement supporting Black lives, I think we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. And I think that, um, like, like Otis says, it's, it's very uplifting to see uh, people uh, from all over the world and people here taking up this matter. Um, and the international scope is there. And of course, every area is going to focus on their own. I think one of the challenges, though, is kind of um, solidarity with Africa right now in terms of trying to understand where those push points are in terms of workers' movements, labor's movements, and women movements. I think we do need more. Not, I mean, I've read some and know a little bit, but I think the general American public needs more information about what's happening uh, in Africa and, and Latin America. But the solid, if, if there's a movement, a struggle there, there is solidarity with those movements. Um, so. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Otis. We're at the end of our time. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation and I look forward to continuing it soon in many, many other forms. Okay. Yes. Thank you both so much for joining us for this Conversations from the Center focused on resist. After this deep and important conversation, I think we all need some time to reflect and to listen.
I suppose this month somehow peace will give us the space and the time to do so. We are now close to the end of conversations from the center, but we can't end the episode without Joseph Camaru. Um, yeah, so this month I reached out to the duo of Nikki, um, which is who are um, Freddie, who is producer named Slickback, and Mojiana. And they form this band called Ogniki, where they're merging their two universes together because they make totally different styles of music. Freddie um, Slickbug, commonly known as Slickbug, is a Kenyan electronic musician based in Kampala at the moment, making um, styles of music like gom, grime, tribal, influenced by these styles of music but more towards like experimental african club music mojana makes she's a a free mojana is a free spirited artist um <clears throat> producer dj um from poland but based in uganda at the moment and the two met at a festival where in 2018, I guess, if I'm not wrong, at Nyaganyage Festival in Uganda. And before the festival, they were in the studio making music together. And yeah, it's just free from, from Mojiana's free from noisy experimental style of music and slick bugs, super dark, um, bassy African experimental style of music. How could you describe the, the track, the piece that we will listen? Um, it has three sections, which was interesting. And all of them really fit well, sort of special, specially well together. And for me, I can hear both elements of like the different artists um, morphing in and out together and being part of the process even though i was not with them while making the track yeah it's more of experimental it has the second phase the second section of the track has a, a more um pulsing drum not really drum but like rhythm and ends more with calm ambient but still results back to darker experimental side
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Conversations from the Center. Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you with us today. If you'd like more information about the Center for Arts, Design, and Social Research, you can follow our website at centerartsdesign.org. You can follow us on Instagram at centerartsdesign, on Twitter at centerartdesign, and you can also email us at center.adsr at gmail.com. 